been a few weeks, but today we are picking up right where we left off in the book of Judges as we continue our study through this book. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Judges chapter 11. That's page 271 if you're using one of our Pew Bibles. Judges chapter 11, and two weeks ago we began by looking, uh, we began this chapter by looking at the life of Jephthah. If you recall, he was, he is the next judge in this book. Jephthah, the deliverer of Israel. And if you remember what we looked at a few weeks ago, he was initially sent to exile by his own brothers because of his scandalous birth. But later, when Israel was threatened with war, the tribal leaders came crawling back to him and they were begging him to help them lead them in the fight against the Ammonites. And if you'll remember how this transpired, there was this dialogue between Jephthah and the elders of Israel there regarding the terms of his return. And what we saw with this man is that clearly he was gifted. He had a way with words. He was persuasive. And I remind you of this because this also plays an important role in our story today as well. So that's where we're picking up, right? Where we left off there in Judges 11. Jephthah has been installed as the leader of Israel. He's preparing to go to war with the Ammonites now. And that's where we pick up, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 11. Our passage today is going to go all the way down through verse 40, but we're just going to begin by reading the first two verses right here. Verses, um, what is that? Verses 12 and 13 here in Judges chapter 11. So brethren, this is God's word. Let us give our attention to it. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me, that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land, from the Aaron to the Jabbok to the Jordan, now therefore restore it peaceably. Amen. Brethren, bow with me again in prayer. Father, what an immense privilege it is to have a copy of your divine, inerrant word. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts today to receive and to believe these truths as revealed here. The truths that you would have for us. And that by the power of your spirit, you would enable us to order our lives according to them as well, for your glory and for your praise. We ask this in the name and the merit of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'm sure you all know what I mean when I say that someone may have won the battle, but they lost the war. Of course, what this means is that sometimes a smaller conflict may be won while the larger and ultimately the more important conflict is lost. 
As I was thinking about this concept, I was reminded of the famous Tet Offensive in the Vietnam War, America's war with Vietnam um, in the late 60s. At the height of the Vietnam War in early 1968, the North Vietnamese at the time launched a major surprise offensive against the Americans. And they launched this on the Vietnamese holiday, Tet. That's why it's called the Tet Offensive. In the larger scheme of things, the offensive itself was a colossal failure. It was an astounding military defeat. The Americans, you know, after the initial shock, recovered and essentially destroyed them. They impaired the North Vietnamese for quite some time after that. But in the larger, grander scheme of things, because the American government had so long been telling the American people, oh, North, North Vietnamese, they are not you know, uh, ready to fight us. They're already being crippled. Just their effort alone in launching this offensive was enough to turn the tide of the war. It exposed the American government as lying to the people. And ultimately, what ended up being an astounding military defeat turned out to be their greatest victory of all. America won that battle. They won it emphatically. But, ironically, that battle ended up essentially costing them the war. Well, this, brethren, is a good illustration of what we've come to in our passage here today. Here we read of this judge, Jephthah. Here is a man, as we're introduced to him, who appears to be a great leader. Here is a man who judges Israel and, as we will see, leads them to a momentous victory over her enemies. But the thing is, although he brings joyous salvation, it's quickly turned to sorrow. Although he brought great military victory, his victory ultimately ends up leading Israel into further, greater, and deeper bondage. He is able to win the battle, but ultimately he is unable to help Israel win the war. So as we look at this today, as, as, I, as, I, as we walk through Jephthah and his story and how he delivers Israel, there's a couple of things that I just want to draw your attention to particularly in how it applies to us as we turn to the text. I mentioned before that Jephthah, as we will see, has a way with words, right? What do we know about words? In James chapter 3, James speaks of the great power that words have. He speaks about the, the power of the tongue. We read there, him give the illustration that just as a large ship is guided by a small rudder, the tongue is a small member that boasts great things. James goes on to say that with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, but also with the tongue we curse people who are made in the image of God. He laments how from the same mouth come cursing as well as blessing. And he says, brethren, this should not be so. Well, as we turn to the story of Jephthah, I want you to see that this is a living parable of what James, James speaks about. We see a man here who is gifted with words. We see a man who, who 
really gives a shining example of faith in his profession that the Lord is the judge. Allegiance to Yahweh. But at the same time, we also see a man who ends up through this same tongue, through his speech that blesses Yahweh, he also ends up bringing a curse upon himself as well. We are to see here the immense power of words for good and for evil. And in the same respect, we also, when we think about words, are to think about what our Lord Jesus taught when He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And He goes on to say that with our words we will be justified and with our words we will be condemned. What Jesus meant is that our words are not just mere words, but they reveal what's ultimately in our hearts. They are a window into what's going on in us at the spiritual level. And that's just like with Yephthah here. Salvation may come on the outside. Things may be going well in this world. But if the root issue of our hearts isn't dealt with, we too are in great danger of winning the battle but losing the war. We too are in great danger of being like Yephthah who accomplished great things but then destroyed it all with his foolish mouth. These are some of the things that I want us to see today as we consider his story of how he delivers Israel, how he wins the battle, but how ultimately he loses the war through the immense power of his tongue. So let's turn to the text. And uh, I have three things for us here today as we work our way through this lengthy passage. The first thing I want you to see is this. In times of difficulty and conflict, we are to entrust ourselves to the Lord who judges rightly. In times of difficulty, in times of conflict, true faith, entrust ourselves to the Lord because He judges rightly. Here under this first point, I want to cover this long dialogue between Yephthah and the king of the Ammonites. It stretches from verse 12 through verse 28 of our passage here. And what what I want you to see is that really, just as capability as a leader really shines forth here, we see a, a marvelous example here. We see an example of true faith in God. This really comes forth as uh, uh, he is, appears to be a very adequate and capable leader. The context, of course, as we just read, is that the Ammonites have gathered for war against Israel. Yephthah has been installed as their leader, and so he sends messengers to the king of the Ammonites in verse 12. And he says, what do you have against me? Why have you come against my land? Clearly, we are to see right away, Yephthah is acting with authority. He's talking to this king as an equal. My land, my people. He's acting in many respects like a king. So Finally, it seems like this is the man that Israel finally, uh, fi- uh, uh, that, that Israel has been longing for for so long. This is the man that they desperately need. Here, here's a man of steel who stands up and he says, How dare you come against the people of the Lord? How dare you come against my land? He takes it. 
personal, as it were. Finally, there seems to be an adequate leader in Israel. Our expectations are at this, at this point, they're through the roof in many respects, considering you know, what has come in the chapters leading up to this. But the king of, Ammonite, of the Ammonites, of course, responds, and he doesn't back down. Essentially, he says in verse 13, I've come against Israel because they took the land from us when they came up out of Egypt. So give it back to us. And what follows from this is a lengthy reply by Jephthah as he answers this accusation. And so let's read it now. This is going to begin in verse 14 all the way down through 27. Here's Jephthah's reply to this accusation that Israel had stolen the land from them. He says, or we read verse 14, Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to them, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom did not listen. So they sent also to the king of Moab, but he did not, would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness, went around the land of Edom, the land of Moab, and arrived at the east side of the land of Moab, and camped on the other side of Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab. For the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sion gathered all his people together and encamped at Jehaz, Jehaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country, and they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with him? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Arar, Arar and its villages, and in the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. What's going on here? Well, in verse 15, he begins his reply, Thus says Jephthah. Right? He leaves no doubt as to the authority in which he speaks here. But really what he does is he acts like a lawyer. A very capable and brilliant lawyer at that. And he just stacks evidence upon evidence that supports his claim, that, that essentially goes against the accusation of this king. What we see in this, of course, is that Israel is very wise with words. 
As we saw two weeks ago with the dialogue with the leaders of Israel, he, he's shrewd, he's persuasive. And more than that, his ultimate appeal, as we see here, is to God. Seems like a very capable man. I don't want to, don't want to break this down, or we don't have time to break it down in great detail, but I do want you to see how Yephthah kind of supports his, his argument here. He gives four basic arguments uh, for why the king of the Ammonites is wrong. First, he gives what we might call a historical argument. In verses 15 through 20, he points the king back to the bare facts of history. He says, no, you've, you've got your facts wrong. When Israel came up out of Egypt, they were peace-seeking. They were going to just pass through the land, but it was only when this king of the Sion came against us did we then fight. And so he says, look, it was never your land to begin with. It was Amorite land, which is different than Ammonite land. And we only went to war with the Amorites because they came against us. So it's a historical argument. Then he gives what, what, what we might say is a theological argument. He says in verse 21 that the Lord gave Sion and his people into the hand of Israel. In other words, he's saying we took possession of the land because God gave it to us. Here it's important to remember that in the ancient Near East, everyone understood that battles and warfare and land grabs were all divinely determined by the gods. That's why, if you'll remember, Gideon would not go out to battle until he had proof that Yahweh was greater than Baal. So, Jephthah is saying here, look, our victory was evidence that our God favored us. Right? Aren't you, just, aren't, aren't you content with giving what your God gives you? This has been divinely determined. Thirdly, then, though, he gives what we might say is a pragmatic argument. He recalls uh, Balak. Uh, if you'll remember, this incident is recorded in Numbers 22. And Balak hired Balaam, uh, right? The, the, uh, the prophet who was restrained by a, talk, a talking donkey, right? Balaam was to, to curse Israel. And basically, uh, Yetha's point here is that, look, Balak opposed us, but he never dared go to war with us. He never even challenged our right to this land. And he failed miserably. You really want to do this? It's a pragmatic argument. But then finally he gives what we might say is a, a legal argument based upon the statute of limitations. Verse 26. It's been 300 years and nobody has brought this allegation against us. So why are you just now bringing it up? You see, this is the reason, really, that seals the deal. This is the objection that's unanswerable. This is reflecting the wisdom of Jephthah in his words. You're coming against us now, but you've never done this before? You've never made this accusation before? Clearly, the implication is, you just see your opportunity. Clearly, this is just a war of naked aggression. This is no liberation of the land. And so that's why in verse 27, he concludes, he brings his closing argument, and he says, I've not sinned against you, you have sinned against me. And now let the Lord judge and decide between us. He's made his case. He's proved his innocence. Now he calls upon the Lord as judge. 
which is essentially a declaration of war. Let's go and let's see who's in the right. What I want you to see here is a glowing picture of Jephthah. Undoubtedly, this is his finest hour. He shows wisdom. He doesn't jump immediately into battle. He reasons with his enemy. He shows knowledge of redemptive history, the works of God in the Exodus. He knew Scripture. He shows a unique giftedness with, with words and with persuasion, which is a characteristic of a good leader. And most importantly, he shows true faith. He calls upon God as his ultimate judge. In this respect, I think we can see now why Jephthah is named in Hebrews chapter 11 in the great hall of fame of faith. He is a true witness of true faith. He is an example to us. Because, ultimately, he entrusts himself to God as judge. He leaves things in God's hands. And that's the point, really, I want you to see and what's most applicable for us today. Because you know what? At one time or another, we all find ourselves in different various conflicts and disputes. And we read it this morning in Matthew chapter 5. That's why our reading of the law dealt with, with, with some of this oath-taking, which we'll see in a minute, but also being wronged and, 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 and loving our enemies. Because you know what? Sometimes... Sometimes people wrong us. Maybe you're here today and somebody has wronged you. Some, someone has, has come and brought false accusations against you. Maybe somebody is warring against you with their words. Maybe they're accusing you of wrongdoing when in reality they're the ones that are sinning. Maybe you've reasoned with them. Maybe all the arguments are on your side, like with Jephthah. And they still won't listen. Maybe they've sinned against you. Maybe they've blatantly hurt you. Well, we can learn from Jephthah here. True faith leaves things in the Lord's hands. That's what Jesus meant when he says, turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Give to those who demand of you. Asking nothing in return. This is what the Apostle Paul means when he says in Romans eleven nineteen, Brethren, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Absolutely, we make arguments to support our cause. But our ultimate help, our ultimate hope is in the Lord. And in the judgment that He will render. Now, yes, in a moment we will see that God vindicates Israel and Jephthah on the battlefield. But for us, things are a little bit different. For us, this is only a foreshadowing. The point is not that the Lord is going to come down and settle the dispute that you might have right now here in this life. But rather, this battle in Judges points us to the greater battle of the last day. When Yahweh, the Lord, Jesus Christ Himself, will descend and he will decide and judge and vindicate his people. He will right every wrong. True faith for us is content to wait until the battle, until that great day. 
not expecting perfect justice here and now. That's what we can see with Jephthah here. This example of faith leaving things to the Lord. Well, all of that then brings us to our second point, which will be shorter. <laughs> there was a lot to cover there, and I really skipped over a lot. But that all leads us, his example of faith, to this, what we see secondly. Secondly here, I want to point out that knowing and confessing the right thing doesn't always lead to doing the right thing. Knowing and confessing the right thing doesn't always lead to doing the right thing. That's what we see. Here in verses 28 through 31, we get the lead up to the battle. But we also get this haunting foreshadowing of what's going to come in the aftermath. Look with me at verse 28 through 31. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. The king doesn't listen. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. We've talked about this before. This is not the same as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. The Spirit of the Lord would come upon leaders really to empower them for warfare in ancient Israel. But it also signals to us that this was God's chosen agent here. To deliver his people. But you might be thinking here, if you were here two weeks ago, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Didn't we read two weeks ago that God said that he would deliver Israel no more? What's going on here? Well, yeah, that is true. And as we will see, true deliverance really never comes. For the rest of this book, Israel is never um, given peace, or excuse me, rest, ultimate rest again. But ultimately what we should see here is that Jephthah has twice invoked the name of the Lord. And so Yahweh is acting now out of his own honor. He's acting for the sake of his own name. And so he empowers Jephthah here because he invoked his name and now he's going to vindicate his name. And so the Spirit comes upon him in verse 29 and like a good leader he goes out recruiting an army to help him fight. But suddenly we get this pause, this break in the narrative. And Jephthah makes this vow to the Lord. What's going on with this? What exactly is he saying? If you don't know the end of the story. Well, you know, he's saying exactly what it sounds like. He vows that if the Lord gives him the victory, he's going to sacrifice as a burnt offering whatever or whoever comes out to meet him after the battle. Now we're going to talk about this more in a moment, but there's a great debate about whether Jephthah knew exactly what he was doing here. The Hebrew phrase is a little bit flexible. It could mean this thing 
that comes out to, to meet me like an animal, or it could mean this one who comes out to meet me, implying a person. But I think that when we read this in context, it, it's pretty clear. Yes, on the basis of the grammar, he could have been vowing to sacrifice an animal upon his victory. But really, it's the normal practice in the ancient Near East for women to come out and greet their returning victors. We saw this with Miriam in the, the Song of the Sea in Exodus 15. And even the language itself seems to apply something very purposeful, something a person would do, not an animal. So in this sense, some argue, well, you know what? He really intended to sacrifice a slave. <laughs> in fact, I heard one preacher joke that perhaps he knew that his mother-in-law lived in the house. <laughs> but I understand him as knowing exactly what he was doing. This is no rash vow, as is often called. When taken in you know, light of his character, what we've seen from him already, this is calculated. This is shrewd. This is manipulative. See, in the ancient Near East, when a battle was going poorly, kings or nobles would be expected to sacrifice their offspring to appease the gods and turn the tide. And remember, Jephthah himself had already said that the gods have ultimate sway over the battle. He had already admitted that. So, Really, what we see in this, I think, is it just like Gideon? He is demonstrating just how much Canaanite is in him. He's acting in accordance with the pagan nations around him. Remember, as we had seen, Israel had already begun to treat God as if He was just another one of their pagan idols. Back in chapter 10, they began to try to negotiate with God. They tried to bargain with Him. They acted as if God could be manipulated and persuaded to give them what they wanted. And that's what Jephthah is doing here. He's negotiating. He's trying to manipulate God. He's trying to, to bind God's hands because deep down, he's terrified of what was going to happen next. In contrast to what he professed in his dialogue with the king, this is not faith. This is doubt. This is not trust. This is trying to maintain control. This is not believing God. This is testing God. And this ultimately flows from pagan assumptions about God, not from the character and the nature of God as revealed in Scripture. Just like he negotiated with the elders of Israel, just like he tries to negotiate with the Ammonite king, he here wages, wages war, in a sense, with Yahweh through his persuasive words to try to get what he wants. But this time, his way with words has taken him much too far. What's tragic about this is that it wasn't even needed. God had empowered him with the Spirit. As we already saw, like he is in the right. His cause is just. He had the promises of God that that land was theirs. But he failed to see 
that anything and everything we receive from God comes because of His character, His love, and His grace, not because of our merit or our persuasion. That's what I mean when I say that knowing and confessing the right thing doesn't always lead to doing the right thing. And everybody was listening. He said, God's going to vindicate me. Let Yahweh decide between us. He is the judge. But in private, he acted very differently. He is an example here of just how frightening, just how powerfully powerful sin and deceptive sin is in the human heart. It's not just what you claim to believe. It's not just how you act when other people are watching. Beware of practicing your righteousness to be seen by others. That's why we read Matthew 5 earlier. It's not just how you act when you're around other Christians, when when you show up to church. It's not just saying the right things and doing the right things. It's, It's when the pressure is on. It's when things aren't going your way. It's when you're scared, you're fearful, you're anxious, you're worried you're going to lose that which you say, I cannot lose this and go on. It's times like that that who we really are is revealed. And it's our words and it's our prayers or even our lack of prayer that expose what we are deep down. Brethren, God cannot be manipulated. He cannot be negotiated with. He cannot be appeased by anything that you do or say. He's not like the pagan gods of this world. Our only hope, your only hope, is in His character. Your only hope is in His grace. Your only hope is in His promises that ultimately come. Only through Jesus Christ and faith through Him. Let us beware of saying the right things while our hearts are far from Him. Well, that leads us then to this awful conclusion. Third and finally, God's salvation that comes through judgment. God brings salvation through judgment let's look at the close of the story verses 32 through 40 read with me so Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and the Lord gave them into his hand and he struck them from Arier to the the neighborhood of Mineth 20 cities and as far as the Abel Kiramen with a great blow, so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him, with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, You've brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies on the Ammonites. 
So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said to her, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the the Galedite four days in in the year. After all this build-up, the battle finally takes place here in verses 32 and 33. But did you notice? It's just a footnote. Two brief verses. Oh yeah, Israel won. Eh. The writer doesn't care. He doesn't even spend any time on it because his focus is really on the fallout. Not the battle, but the war. And what that tells us about the nation of Israel. Here then, there is no glory in this victory. As soon as the battle is over, we know what's coming next. He returns in verse 34, and lo and behold, we read. Would you look at that? His one and only daughter comes out to greet him in great celebration. Talk about irony, huh? Innocent daughter, overcome with joy at this amazing victory. I'm going to go out and greet you to celebrate. And immediately... This brings mourning because of Yetha's foolish mouth. What's partly so troubling about this is how he responds to her in verse 35. In case you didn't notice, this is textbook victim shaming, right? He has the audacity to blame her. He essentially says to her, this is your fault. You have brought me very low. You have become the cause of trouble To me, even though he is the one who made the vow, it's pathetic. And he tries to act all pious. Oh, well, I made a vow and now I can't take it back. Never mind the fact that human sacrifice was an abomination to the Lord, as the law explicitly states. Never mind the fact that there are provisions in the law. Leviticus 5, Leviticus 19. There are instructions for when you make a rash vow, how you can get out of it. He doesn't want to get out of it. Ultimately, he doesn't care. This is just in line with his character. He's a mercenary. He's made a deal with his words. He's going to go ahead now and purchase that which he really wanted, no matter what the cost. It's all about him. It's all about him. And so, yes, in verse 39, he does the unthinkable. He literally sacrifices his own daughter. Just a sickening end of the story. As I mentioned, there's a great deal of debate here. Some say that he didn't actually sacrifice her, but that he actually just devoted her to the Lord. After all, he is mentioned in Hebrews 11 as a hero of the faith. How could the Bible commend a man that does something like this? And so they argue, well, he dedicated her to temple service. And, you know, that's why she weeps for her virginity, because... 
you know, that's her concern. She's celibate now. She can't marry a man. She's devoted to the service of the Lord in the temple. So she goes and mourns for her virginity. And that's, he didn't really do this. But I think, I'm going to argue that that really betrays both the grammar and the context of what's going on here. I'm not going to go into all the details, but I'll just put it this way. As Matthew Henry so aptly puts it, If she had only been dedicated to celibate life, then why, in verse 37, does she ask for two months to mourn her virginity? She would have had her whole life to do that. She doesn't need two months vacation. But then this is why the book of Judges is so shocking. This is the depth to which the people of God fell in their sin. Just think of the bigger picture of what's going on here. When Israel came up out of Egypt, God brought judgment upon the Egyptians by killing their firstborn among them. But now we are to see God's judgment has fallen upon them. When Israel came up out of Canaan, the Lord said, the the Canaanites are so evil that they sacrificed their own children. Therefore, I'm going to send you in there to punish them. To bring judgment upon them. But now it's Israel doing the very same thing. When Israel came up out of Egypt, God said, He warned them, be careful of adopting Canaanite practices. Be careful the influence of the nations. If you're you're not careful, you're going to fall into their practices. And to the very fullest extent, now we see it coming true. This is Canaanization in the worst possible sense. At the end of this story, even Israel's victory is defeat. Because the ultimate problem, sinfulness, inward corruption, idolatry, still has not been remedied. That's what the book of Judges is flashing before our eyes. Something else has to happen. Doesn't matter if you have the Word of God, the promises of God, the covenants of God. Something else is necessary if God's people are going to be saved from themselves. But don't forget, I put all of this under the heading, God's salvation that comes through judgment. And that's what I want us to walk away with here. What do I mean by that? Well, on one hand, as you know, I've strove, uh, strived to, to show from every judge, Jephthah is a type of Christ, even with his flaws. And we ought to recognize this. He is that one who is full of wisdom. He is that one who declares God's word and, and professes allegiance to him. He is that warrior who wins back the land for God's people. Christ is wisdom incarnate. Christ had a way with words unlike anybody who ever lived. Christ fought back and earned for us the heavenly land for the people of God to enjoy in eternity. Christ is that ultimate judge and warrior that Yephthah points us to. But even more than this, I want to submit to you that the true type of Christ here is rather found in his daughter. At the end of the day, she is the ultimate hero of this story. 
another woman raised up in judges who puts the men to shame. She is the innocent daughter, the scapegoat here. She is the innocent victim who pays for Yetha's sin. She is the one who, through her death, Israel is granted the victory on the surface of things. She's also the model of true faith. Look at how she responds in verse 36. Do according to what you vowed to the Lord. No argument. No complaining. Rather, the contrast here is so stark. She does what Yephthah claimed to do or to believe, but he didn't do. She submits to God knowing that He will vindicate her at the last day. She entrusts herself to the judgment of God ultimately. And you say, well, well, how do you know she did this? Well, look at what is described of her. What's her one request? She asked for two months to mourn her virginity. Why? Why not just mourn for her life? Doesn't that make more sense? Why mourn that you can't have a husband and have children? Well, brethren, in the context of the Old Covenant, Old Covenant blessings were tied to the birth of children. Because it's through the birth of children that the Messiah would come. Genesis 3.15, God promises, salvation will come through the seed of the woman. To Abraham, I will be a God to you and your children. To David, I will bless your offspring. All of these point to and culminate to Jesus Christ as that child that comes through the genetic line, which is why children, uh, male children were circumcised, which why household faith was Old Testament and now in New Testament it's spiritual. The point, though, is that by being unable to bear children, she loses her place in this messianic line. She loses her place to help bring forth that seed to bring salvation. And so, in other words, because she is a woman of true faith, she knows that her misfortune of not having children is even worse than not having her own life spared. Because she was prohibited from having children, it's akin to being cut off from the covenant. It's a sign of covenant cursing. I'm submitting to you here that she knew and believed the Messianic promises. And that's why she acts like she does. And she saw the loss of her participation in that as greater than even the loss of her own life. This is true faith. And this, brethren, is how God's salvation is accomplished through judgment. This is how we are to then see the same salvation through judgment that God accomplished on the cross. She is the innocent substitute who died for the people. She is the one who submits to the will of her Father, just like Jesus Christ came and submitted to the will of His Father, even to the point of death on the cross. She was willing to be cut off from the covenant and bear the curse for the people of God, just as Christ was cut off from the covenant. He became a curse for us so that we might be saved. 
She points us to Jesus Christ. Brethren, as we conclude this morning, I hope you see that Jephthah won the battle, but ultimately he lost the war. Israel is worse off spiritually than they were before. But what is that? What do we see in comparison in the gospel? We see Jesus Christ lose the battle, but ultimately win the war. Because it's through his death, here and now, that we are assured of victory and eternal life. Instead of victory in this life and loss in the life to come, in Christ we don't really experience victory in this life. We are persecuted, troubled. We go through many pains and sorrows and afflictions. But because our sins have been cleansed, the internal victory has been won, we are assured of victory in the life to come. You see the flip here? And instead of celebration in this life that turns to mourning in the next life, in Christ so often we mourn now. Right? Isn't that the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who mourn. We mourn now, but soon every tear, every sorrow, every pain, every affliction will be wiped away and removed, and we will rejoice eternally. And instead of the daughters of Israel coming every year to mourn the daughter of Jephthah, as we see here at the end of this passage, Christ's death doesn't end that way. Oh, we still have a memorial. We have a memorial in the Lord's Supper where we remember His death, but it is a joyful memorial. It is a memorial of hope, of eager expectation, because even though He died, He has risen, and He will come again to rescue His people. Brethren, this is the gospel that Jephthah declares to us in this passage. This is the warning it gives to us regarding our foolish and rash speech at times, but this ultimately is the victory that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. May God give us the grace to hear, to receive, to believe these things so that we too might come forth victorious in that war of the great day. Amen. Let's pray.